Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 4, verse 8 through Psalm, through Psalm 5, verse 4. So in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. As John said earlier in the service, this is a part of our psalm series. We've been going through the psalms really asking the question of uh, how can we learn to pray through the psalms? What, uh, what can we learn about prayer by reading the psalms and, and allowing them to shape uh, our lives and, uh, and our prayers? And so uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 4 and 5 this morning. Mickey read parts of those for us. And uh, before we begin looking at those texts this morning... Um, I love to begin with prayer and asking God to help us respond to his word uh, as we pray. So, Father in heaven, thank you that you are with us, that your presence is with us always, that you're always present to us. But I pray now as we open up the Bible, as we look at these psalms, as we think together Um, that you would help us to attend to you. You're always present to us. Would we be present to you? And would we find joy in that presence? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every once in a while, there is a talk or a book or a film that you see, and because it's so helpful or so impactful or so insightful, you just keep coming back to it over and over again. And for me lately, one of those books in particular has been Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit. And it's a New York Times bestseller. Uh, and I've mentioned it here uh, this morning, and probably if you uh, men- remember that this is probably not the first time I've mentioned the book, um, because it has been so helpful to me. I read it for the first time about a year ago, and it's just continued to shape uh, ways that I think about life and, and how I live my life uh, because of the kind of research that, that Duhigg surveys in the book. He He does this really big survey of kind of neurological and sociological research around how habits form our lives and really shape who we become, both for good and for ill, and and how we make habits, how we break habits, how we form new habits. And because much of life is a habit, our brain is designed to create patterns that our subconscious can just sort of kick into automatically, and so our, our conscious brain can be thinking about other things. And, and the classic example of this, right, is, is driving home from work or taking the kids to school. After a while, it becomes so natural that you can be listening to the radio, an audiobook, a podcast, and you end up back in your driveway and you don't really remember the drive itself. And see, much of our lives actually follow that same pattern. You just do stuff, your habits, without even really thinking about it, what your routine is throughout the day good habits and bad habits. And this means that nearly all meaningful and lasting change in our lives is change that comes about through the formation of habits. And particularly when it comes to changing habits, there's a really important kind of habit that Duhigg calls a keystone habit. It's one habit that that leads to a bunch of other habits when you start it. 
And basically, these habits, these routines, these rhythms, these ruts, they shape us profoundly, who we become over the course of time. Now, I love routine. I love a good pattern in my life. And so I love hearing this kind of research. But, but maybe you're here this morning saying, Bill, look, I, that's just not me. I'm not really a routine person. I'm more of, I'm more of a creative. I'm more of a free spirit. That's just not, that's not who I am. And, and I want to address that in a minute. But before we do, I want to pause and ask us all a question as well. And that is, how many of us here this morning feel busy? I'm seeing a lot of heads nod. I would imagine that most of us here this morning would say we feel busy. And last Sunday at the end of Psalm 3, that psalm ends with this idea, this picture of rest. A rest from the busyness, not just sort of a little R&R, not just some TV time at the end of the day, but deep rest. And for those of you who, who don't feel busy in your schedule, maybe you say, actually, I don't have that much going on, Bill. But I imagine there's a certain amount of busyness in here, in your mind, in your heart, as you go throughout the day. And what the Bible offers to us, what Jesus offers to us, is rest, real rest. Rest from that that murmur inside of us, that, that constant feeling of busyness on the inside. Whenever I start describing that real kind of rest that the Bible offers, and, and, I, and I watch people respond to it, I, I feel a little bit like someone in, in a refugee camp describing what a grocery store is like. People just start salivating, saying, rest, where is this rest that you speak of? I've, I've got to get some of this. Busyness and rest are always at war within us, it seems. And usually busyness wins. And busyness isn't going away. Activity in our lives, schedule isn't going away. It's part of our design to work and to, and to fill our, our days with, with good activity. That's not going to go away. And it's true. We can learn to manage that and have better rhythms and better boundaries. That's true. But our lives are going to be characterized by a lot of activity. That's just how they, they work. And yet, is it possible in the midst of that activity, in the midst of that full schedule, to actually rest, not just from that, but in the midst of it? Can we rest even in the activity? Can there be chaos and busyness outside of us, around us, and yet have peace within us? So let me bring this all together. This first conversation we had about habits, busyness, Psalm 4 and 5, how do these three things come together? When you look at the hurry, the restlessness that, that is eating away at us, and then you see that the neurological research and sociological studies that Duhigg profiles in the power of habit, and then you read Solomon 4 and 5, what you come across, the intersection of these three things is one very important thing, and that is if you want to rest, you need a better rut. <laughs> if, if you want to rest, you need a better routine, a better habit, a better pattern, You see, rest is fundamentally a habit. Rest is not necessarily a change in our schedules, because at the end of the day, so much of our schedules is set for us anyhow, with our work, our school. Rest is a change of heart. And in saying that, I'm not minimizing the fact that some of us really do need to put better boundaries on our time. We really do need to put away our devices when we get home at the end of the day. We need to be home at the end of the day when we say we will. 
So all that's true, but, but rest, real rest, actually begins here. It's not a matter of just getting the better task management app. So, so if you want to rest, you need to dig a better rut, make a better habit. And Psalm 4 and 5 give us a blueprint for, for digging that better rut in our lives, for forming that better habit, entering an ancient rhythm of rest. So Psalm 4 shows us a rhythm of evening prayer. Psalm 5, a rhythm of morning prayer. And then together at the end, we're going to look at just how do we learn prayer together. So rhythms of prayer, they're key to rest. But the greatest enemy of prayer, I don't think it's our self-centeredness or pride. I mean, certainly those things pray into why, play into why we don't pray. But the greatest enemy of prayer, I believe, is busyness. I know that's true in my life. And so you may be thinking, Bill, I'm just too busy to add another routine, another set of habits in my life. And we'll, we'll address that a little bit at the end in the learning prayer. How can we do this when we already have so much going on? But I just want to say to you this morning that this is a rhythm, this is a rut, a habit that your soul, whether you realize it or not, is longing for. You may not be a routine person, but this is one routine that I guarantee your heart's crying out for. So Psalm 4 is a prayer for the night, an evening prayer. It's a prayer of surrender. Now, now maybe you're thinking, uh, Bill, I know we've talked about how the Psalms were kind of compiled into one big book by an editor and a team of editors along throughout the history of, of God's people. And, and isn't it kind of a bummer that they ended up putting the evening psalm first rather than the morning psalm? It would, it would make more sense to have the morning psalm first. But that's really our Western way of thinking because our days in the West, they start with the morning. They start with us, with what we can accomplish but in the Hebrew mindset, day starts at the sundown, right? So if you have uh, Jewish friends or if you've grown up in a Jewish background, you know the, the Sabbath starts on Friday night, right? Friday evening at sundown. And this is rooted in the pattern that we see in creation. And when you go back and you read Genesis chapter 1, how does it describe the first day? It says there was evening and morning, evening and morning the first day. Our day begins with the evening. It begins with rest, It begins from a place not of work, not of activity, but a place of rest. See, all night belongs to God. We say farewell to our work, our frustrations, our goals. It's the one time, going to bed at night, it's the one time every day, whether you want to or not, whether you're conscious of it or not, that you actually surrender and give things over to God. And the amazing thing is, is that when we go to sleep each night and we turn off our email or we fall asleep with our phone in our hands, Rachel has a picture of me, I've fallen asleep with my phone in my hand before. Um, somehow the world keeps going on for six or eight or 12 hours while we're asleep. And this is the thing that God manages to do this even without us every night. So evening prayer surrenders. It surrenders our desires, and it surrenders our disasters. First it, first, it surrenders our disasters, both big ones and small ones, ones with inside of us as well as those around us. Listen to verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 4. This is how David begins. He says, Answer me, O God, when I call. 
You have heard, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But you know that the Lord sets apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And so similar to last week in Psalm 3, David is facing the mess of the world. He's being attacked, slandered, abused. And he names the brokenness around him, and he surrenders it to God. Think about it. How often do you go to bed frustrated or lonely or just angry, overwhelmed, maybe disappointed, tired, not just in your body, but just a weariness of heart and soul? Maybe you're going to bed and finances are going through your mind. The budget at home isn't working or the company's not making the profit margin that you need. It's just not breaking even. Maybe your daughter or your son isn't making wise choices. Maybe there's a conversation at work in the morning that you're dreading, and so our minds just sit there and churn. But in evening prayer, we say tonight, God, I surrender to you. I trust you to be God for a while. And you can't do any of those things while you sleep anyway. I mean, you can't hold on to all of that. You just have to let go. Fall asleep and let God handle it. And you see, otherwise, if we don't do this, the disasters that are facing us externally quickly become disasters inside of us. They overflow and our hearts are led into sin and shame and anger. If you look at verses 4 and 5, you see this. David says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. What I think is so key about this is that it's okay to be angry. There is real evil and wrong in the world. There is real things to be afraid of. Be angry, the psalmist says, but don't sin. And I was reminded of this late last night as I was going to bed, and I just set Lucy down. I'd been looking at the news on my phone, and my dad's a, a police officer, has been for many years, and I just read a news article about the police officer who was shot and killed in Houston while he was filling up his patrol car. And whenever I read those kind of stories as the son of a police officer, immediately there's this fear and anger that simultaneously well up in me. So I had to practice that last night as I was falling asleep to to be angry but not to sin, to trust that God is just and the protector. Don't harbor bitterness or plan revenge or cower in fear. Instead, look into your heart, confess sin, receive forgiveness. Basil the Great, who was one of the early church fathers, did a lot of thinking on the Holy Spirit. He said, the practice of nightly prayer is particularly helpful for avoiding future sins. So we surrender our disasters, but we also surrender our desires because there's lots of good things in life that we can be anxious about, excited for as we fall asleep at night. Those things can also distract us. Things we want for our families, hopes we have for, for our careers, for our work, good things, legitimate things, they're just not ultimate things. 
And when we're tempted to find joy there, we actually end up losing joy. Look at verses 6 and 7. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. These two verses, more than any other in this particular psalm, really stayed with me this week. This cry of, God, show us something good. But really, the highest good that God can show us, the highest good He can give us, is not all that stuff, but Himself, His presence. That, believe it or not, is is more joy than when grain and wine abound. The the picture of grain, this is security, this is income. In, In an agricultural culture. And if you, if you go out to Kansas or Nebraska, right, the harvest is key. That's your security, right? When grain abounds. So he's saying, your presence, God, is better than financial security. And wine is a picture of celebration and joy and laughter and pleasure. And God gives his people joy by giving them himself. Which means that our experience of joy means attending to God and His presence in our lives. One of the questions that just kind of stuck with me throughout the week was, how much joy have I missed out on because I was looking for good in grain and wine rather than seeking God's presence? In peace, the psalmist concludes, I will lie down and sleep for you alone make me dwell in safety. We give this to God. We say, we've been working all day, Lord. Now as we go to rest, we give you all night. But then we come to the morning, and it's time to wake up again. And I don't know about you, but every time my alarm goes off in the morning, it never seems long enough. Surely it can't be that time already. And chances are that whatever you went to bed thinking about the night before is what you wake up pondering in the morning And it's those things that we think about when we go to bed at night and those things that are first on our mind in the morning, those are the things that are most likely our idols, most likely the things that we're really worshiping and trusting in instead of God. And here's the thing, if if I don't pray at night and in the morning, what ends up happening is that my idols tuck me in at night and they greet me and wake me up first thing in the morning. You see, if there's any hope of escaping that, we have to begin these rhythms of morning and evening prayer. So evening prayer surrenders. Morning prayer, on the other hand, anticipates. God has been working all night, and so when we come to the morning, we're now joining him in the work that he's already done. Have you ever thought about it that way, that God has been at work all night long? And so when you come in the morning to begin your work, you're not starting fresh on your own. You're joining him in what he's already doing. It's not our time to supplant him, but to join him. And so as you wake, anticipate something. Morning prayer anticipates us to to anticipate his, pushes us to anticipate his presence and his paths. So first his presence What we see in Psalm 5 is that verse 1, it sounds like morning prayer. When I was reading Psalm 5 this week in my study, I thought this is exactly how every one of my mornings starts. 
He says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. I feel like every morning begins with a groan as I turn the alarm off. And not just a physical groan, but that mind kind of instantly beginning to engage with what do I need to get done today? What things are pressing? What conversations do I need to have or emails that I haven't gotten to yet? And my tendency is to begin with those fears that task looks rather than with God's faithfulness. But that habit, that pattern of morning prayer, it changes that. It forces me to anticipate, God, what do you want to get done today? And how can I be joining you in that? Verse 2 says, give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God. This thing of, the theme of kingship comes up a lot in the Psalms. Who's really in control? Who's really ruling our lives? And it's not us. We want to be in charge, but have you ever stopped to, to thank God that that's not the case, that, so, that He is in charge, that He's the one ruling? And every time I read Psalm 5, I just get stuck on Psalm 5, verse 3, where it says, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. God hears your voice. Isn't that an incredible thing? You may not feel it. In fact, you may feel the absence of God when you pray. But He hears your voice. He's not absent. And when we begin to anticipate Him, when we begin to to do this work in morning prayer of anticipating His presence, what happens is that you actually find yourself seeing him in the mundane details of your life throughout the day. And because you're anticipating his presence, you're then ready to really see his paths, his kingdom, his ways. Really, verse 4 on through the end of Psalm 5 is really just an extended way of saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This phrase that Jesus teaches us in, in the Lord's Prayer and just listen to a little bit more of Psalm 5. It says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. And the psalmist is saying, God, you're perfect. And, and why would you, how could you bring your holiness into my life? Rid the world of evil and get done whatever you want done. Now, those are strong words that the psalmist brings to us. But the psalmist ultimately understands that every day there are two kingdoms, and they're at war with one another, God's kingdom and the kingdom of the world, of the forces that have aligned themselves against him. And yes, God loves all people, and yet those who fight against him, he's given every opportunity for them to lay down their weapons and join him. And yet there is real evil in the world, and God will act to remove it, to destroy it. He will make this world as well as this heart right one day. So are you anticipating his presence? Are you working for it? Are you looking for his kingdom or your own? 
You see, this prayer isn't just about the big picture of what God is doing all across the world. It is about that, but it's also deeply personal. It's about the path that he's leading us on. Verse 8, it says, O Lord, in your righteousness, because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. God, show me the way I should go. Show me how to respond in the different situations. Show me how to prioritize my day. What things do I really need to get to? I'm not going to get everything done that I have to today. So what are the things that you would have me do first? Begin there. You see, David in this psalm, his world is clearly in chaos. He's facing these difficulties. And yet, even so, at the end of his prayer, he finds joy. Verses five, or chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, he says, But all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with a shield, with favor as with a shield. You see, without evening prayer... We can't rest from our work. And without morning prayer, we can't rest in our work. Without evening prayer, we can't rest from our work. Without morning prayer, we can't rest in our work. But then the question comes, okay, Bill, but how do we actually build these rhythms, these patterns, these habits? How do we dig this new rut into our lives? I think there's two things here. The first thing is that that we need to name our excuses. What are the excuses that we have for for not putting these habits into place? Name those and then stop making them. And then secondly, learn to make prayer a habit. So to name the excuses and then learn to make it a habit. So I think there's a number of common excuses that at least I find myself making when it comes to these routines and patterns of prayer. And the first one is that I'm too busy. I'm just too busy to add something else in to my day. When I wake up in the morning, my mind turns to all the tasks that are waiting for me. And it's actually easy to think, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but that it seems like prayer would be a distraction, almost irresponsible. There's so much work to do. The most responsible thing I should do is actually get right to the email and get back to these people who have contacted me to, to take another 10 minutes or 15 minutes, even five minutes to pray. It just seems irresponsible. I'm too busy. But the truth is, the more we have to get done, the more we need to pray. A number of years ago, it's probably maybe even decades ago now, Bill Hybels, a pastor in Chicago, wrote a book called Too Busy Not to Pray. I'd never read the book. I've probably been too busy. Um, But the title has always stuck with me. That the busier we are, the more hurried we are, the more we need to pray, not less. I think it's one of the things that sabbatical was so good for me was realizing that reality. I think another reason we give for not praying is that we just don't know what to say. I mean, how many of us are there? You sit down and say, okay, I know I need to pray. I know I should pray. And you just kind of, I don't even know where to start. It just feels awkward. It, it doesn't sound like me when I start to pray. And, and to that, I would say, first of all, just begin where you are. Sometimes when I'm in that place, and, and even as a pastor, yes, I get to places where I don't really know what to say or what to pray. 
I pray about that. I just say, God, I don't know what to say right now. I'm tired. I'm distracted. I start praying about that. The key thing in prayer is to begin where you are. I mean, God knows what's on your mind and your heart anyway. Just begin telling him that. God, I feel really awkward talking to you right now, or I don't know what to say. Begin where you are. But this is also where we have to remember and not get discouraged because prayer is a learned language. And it takes a lot of work, and you don't get a lot out of it at first. Because remember, if you've ever learned a language, when you begin learning Spanish or French, it's like, gosh, at first it's just all memorization, and you're trying, it's, it's a lot of effort. But over time, if you persist in that, what you discover is a whole new world is open to you, and the same is true in prayer. Maybe you're not getting a lot out of it now, but keep learning, keep practicing. And this is also where the Psalms, I mean really all the Bible, but the Psalms in particular become so helpful because these prayers of God's people throughout the centuries actually become our language learning book. They give us language when we don't have it. So maybe you don't know what to say. Turn to a psalm. Make that psalm your prayer. Own it. I think another excuse we make for not setting up regular times of prayer is that we say, well, I pray all the time. I'm more of kind of a pray without ceasing person. I'm just sort of sending up little prayers throughout the day or before a meeting. And that's really good. We should definitely be doing that. Um, But when we come to that as a reason for not setting up regular patterns of prayer, I was realizing this this week. If there's one person that was truly praying constantly, who really was praying all the time, who who really did pray without ceasing, who really was in constant communion with the Father, it it was Jesus, right? But there's one person who really got the praying without ceasing thing right. It was Jesus. And yet when we turn to the Gospels, we see Jesus regularly setting tide specific times to do nothing else but pray. And so I would just say, if you feel like you've got that more figured out than Jesus, that's that's great, and, and I'd love to learn from you. But if not... Maybe we ought to follow Jesus' pattern that he, that he sets for us of these times of regular prayer. So maybe at this point you say, okay, Bill, I, I think I see your point. <laughs> I'm getting there. But if I'm really honest, the reason that I don't pray is that I just don't get that much out of it. I just don't get much out of it. And I would say, first of all, I've been there. And I would say there are seasons, maybe even extended seasons, where you may feel that way. When I say extended, I don't just mean like a week or two. I'm talking maybe a year or two. Some people have called that a dark night of the soul. This is what I would say to you if you find yourself there. I'd just say continue to cry out to God. Tell him that you feel his absence. We're going to see that in the Psalms. Regularly, the psalmists say, God, where are you? Why aren't you hearing me? Ask for his help to attend to his presence. Saturate yourself in the scriptures. Keep pressing in. In the end, and I don't just mean in the end, as in the end of next week, but in the end, in the final analysis, it will have been so worth it. So the first thing is just to stop making the excuses. The second thing is to make it a habit. So to dig the rut, to begin to form this new habit in our lives. Because if we want to rest, we need a better routine. 
Because patterns shape our lives, and we all have them, whether we realize it or not. For some of us, our evening habit is to, to watch TV until we're too tired or even just fall asleep in front of the TV. Or maybe it's the pattern of, of I'm just going to try to get one more sentence typed in this email or one more slide done in this presentation. Or just get one more load of laundry in. And the morning is similar. We have a routine as well. We, we either wake up way too late. How many of us are in this place where it's like we're always hitting the snooze button 10 times until we're screaming out of the house and we don't have anything, time, anything but hurry? Or we're too tired from the night before to do anything or we're on Facebook or it's back to TV? Because whether we like it or not, we have these patterns in our lives. So we just need a better one. We need a better habit. And this is where Charles Duhigg's work and the power of habit just becomes so helpful. Because he says, when you think about habits, there's this thing called a habit loop. And it's made up of three pieces. You have a cue, a routine, and a reward. And the cue, for every habit, there's a cue. The thing that puts your brain into autopilot. And then there's the routine. That's the actual habit, the thing you do. And then the reward is the, the motivation behind it. And, and to add or change any habit, you have to identify what is the cue and then understand what's the reward. And this is, this is life-changing stuff. It's how God has designed us as people. And so for me, my nighttime cue that sets me into evening prayer is just pulling out my phone and setting my alarm for the next morning. So when I set my phone down on my bedside table, the cue is to, to pray and Rachel and I usually go to bed at the same time, so it's often something we do together. And it isn't long. I mean, if it's two or three minutes, that's probably a long time. And we simply just pray for our daughter, for our family, for things that are happening in our lives. My morning cue is just I show up here at the office. I, I leave right from the house. I come straight here to the, the, the church, and I sit down at my desk and open up my Bible and open up my notebook, and I start and, and there's not anything super spiritual about that or that I'm so spiritual. It's just become a habit. It's something I do. I, it's almost like I can't do anything else. I get here, I turn the key, my Bible lands on my desk, my notebook opens, and I'm in the rhythm of prayer. Rachel and Lucy also have a habit. They uh, get up after I get pretty early and leave the house, so they're awake after I am. And when they eat breakfast together at the table, Rachel just reads Scripture to Lucy and then reads to her from the Jesus Storybook Bible. It doesn't happen every day without fail, but it's a habit. When they sit down at the table together, that's what they do. Another habit for our family that leads us into prayer is when we eat dinner together at the table at night, um, we always pray before a meal. And a while ago, about a month ago, I started asking Lucy, who's just barely learning to talk, if she could pray. And so she just says, it usually sounds like, thank you, God. And sometimes it's just gah. So it's like, Lucy, you want to pray? Gah. Okay, so she says that, and then she wants to hold our hands, and then she waits for me to pray, and then says, amen. But it was amazing to me is yesterday at lunch, we ate at the dining room table, which we don't usually do for lunch. And we didn't do that normal routine because it was lunchtime, it wasn't dinner time. But even after just a month of doing that, as we were starting to eat, she stuck her hands out, wanted to hold our hands, and said, God, God. And she wanted us to pray. So it's just amazing how quickly a habit forms. The cue, we're sitting at the dining room table, Dad, this means we pray. And again, I, part of me hates sharing all that stuff about 
our family and about our lives. And I don't want to say that we've got it all figured out because we absolutely don't by any means. And I'm not an expert. But prayer can be awkward and it can be boring and it can be weird. And no matter who you are, I just want to give you a little picture of how it works in our lives. And my point in sharing all of this is that prayer is hard work, but it's less hard if it's a habit. That's the only reason I give those examples. Not, not to say I've got it figured out, but if you make it a habit, it's easier. It's still not easy, but it's easier. And, and again, I also sort of hesitate to share those specifics because I don't want you to think that this is a one-size-fits-all, that, well, this is what the Gormans do, or this is what Bill does, and so this is what I have to do. Your routine is going to be different probably than, than mine or ours is. But the point is you need a routine. Morning and evening, a pattern. I skimmed through a book uh, recently called Daily Rituals, How Artists Work. It's by a reporter named Mason Curie. And the book is just a whole list of short profiles of kind of great thinkers, artists, musicians, writers throughout history, from Benjamin Franklin to painters and uh, musicians, Beethoven, Mozart. And what emerges in these profiles is that habits, routines, rituals, they provide a framework for inspiration and spontaneity. You see, if everything in your life is spontaneous, then really nothing is. And when we make prayer a habit, we find ourselves delighting in, being aware of, going to God far more frequently throughout the day than if we had formed, if we hadn't done the work of forming a habit. So you have the, the cue, the routine, and then the reward of this habit, it's rest. That we get not, not necessarily a physical rest of I'm not tired at the end of the day, but a rest in the inside, an unhurried spirit, a less distracted mind. Okay, so here's what I want us to do together as a church family. Uh, hopefully you were handed a card on the way in that has Psalm 4 on the front and Psalm 5 on the back. And if you didn't get one, they're, they're sitting on the table on the way back. Grab one on your way out. And I just wanted you, I'm going to invite you to take that card and just put it on your bedside table or in, in the car, wherever you, want, wherever you would see it on a regular basis. And let Psalm 4 shape your prayer in the evening and Psalm 5 in the morning. And there's even some great questions for meditation that you can use with any passage. When you're moving from reading the Bible into pray, ask those few questions, and it'll, I think it will help you with that, I don't know what to say. Use that to start digging this rut, creating this pattern in your life. But we would be remiss if we ended here with just something else to do. So one last thing, as you're working to build this habit in your life, rest in grace. Because here's the thing, you're going to blow it. I blow it all the time. It's not going to happen every day. There's going to be seasons where it's more difficult. And we're at the end of the day, we're going to not do this as we should. But one of the most beautiful things about Jesus and one of the most beautiful things about the Bible, in particular the Psalms, is that these 150 Psalms, this was Jesus' prayer book. I mean, think about this. As a, as a Jewish boy growing up in the first century, Jesus would have known and read and prayed these Psalms regularly. That's how old they are. He prayed these prayers. Jesus practiced these rhythms. 
And what I love is that in Hebrews chapter 7, it says this, that consequently Jesus is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Intercession is this idea of prayer. And in a way that is totally amazing, Jesus is constantly before the Father, praying for you, praying for me. You see, the only way that we can build habits of prayer is if we know that Jesus is praying for us, forgiving our prayerlessness, helping us to pray. If you succeed in this, it's because Jesus is praying for you. If you're failing in this, it's okay. He's forgiven you because he's interceding for you. He shed his blood on the cross to forgive us and also to empower us. So as we surrender our disasters and our desires to him, as we anticipate his presence in our lives, we begin to, though we have a lot of activity, we become less and less hurried, less and less busy on the inside. He invites us to rest in him. And he invites us to a rhythm in which we find rest. And that really is a rut, a habit worth forming. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you in all of your wisdom have designed us as creatures who live in rhythm and routine of waking and resting.